Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. Today, I have the great pleasure of introducing Dr. Dudley, who's going to talk to us about cryptorchidism and current management and best practices. For those of you who know Anne, you know her as incredibly kind. Her patient and families love her, and I've um, enjoyed working with her. When I was looking over her CV last night, I was surprised that she started in 2017 because it feels like just yesterday, but then again, it feels like we've been working together for a while. She has an illustrious um, pedigree coming to us from undergraduate school at Yale. She did her graduate training at the University of Pittsburgh, um, and she did her postgraduate training and fellowship at Vanderbilt. She's done a phenomenal job with our spina bifida population um, and has actually gotten us a center of excellence status for her work in this area. Uh, One of the things that uh, reminds me most of Anne is that when she first started, we had a beautiful picture of her with her baby. Um, And I was uh, lucky enough to have um, a picture sent to me where um, her little baby is not so little anymore um, and is holding a picture of um, the original pamphlet that we had when um, Dr. Dudley started. I think we're going to show it here. And there it is. And look at that beautiful picture. So that warms my heart. And I guess it was, you know, 2017. It seems like just yesterday. Anyway, without further ado, I would like to uh, introduce Anne to come give us our, our grand rounds. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, It worked out that uh, we were just chatting about this photo yesterday, and my daughter likes holding it and saying, look, I'm not so little anymore. Um, But thank you very much for the opportunity to speak today. Um, So we're going to talk about cryptorchidism today, or the undescended testicle. Um, And I wanted to go over current management and best practices. In terms of disclosures, I have no financial disclosures, and I will not be discussing any off-label use or uh, discussion of medications. So the origin of this talk um, comes from uh, my experience at multiple different institutions, um, and similar challenges uh, have been noticed in uh, cryptorganism management. Um, There is some recent evidence from a variety of uh, uh, bodies suggesting the need for continued uh, dissemination of guidelines and how to best manage uh, patients with cryptorganism. Um, And I wanted to talk about just optimizing high value, uh, high quality value-based care um, in this current uh, healthcare climate. So my objectives today will be to describe the testicular descent and presentation of undescended testes, to review examinations and how to detect an acquired undescended testicle, um, and to determine, uh, describe surgical intervention uh, and long-term outcomes of orchiopexy. So for some background, uh, there is uh, current evidence that supports early orchidopexy uh, for undescended testicles in infants. And there are various international guidelines, which we will uh, go over today. Um, But the data reports delayed orchiopexy is common despite consistent guidelines across multiple countries. Uh, With the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been a delay in pediatric non-emergent procedures and referrals. And with this, uh, there was much parental anxiety and practitioner anxiety. So I thought it would be a good time to review the current evidence and management to help improve the quality and timeliness of care in this particular patient population. 
So uh, for some more background, cryptorchidism affects about 3 to 5% of boys at birth, depending on the group that you look at. Uh, it is increased in premature infants, uh, and there is spontaneous descent that occurs within the first few months of life, um, leaving us at about 1% of one-year-old boys uh, will have an undescended testicle. For some embryology, uh, there are two phases of the testicular descent, the transabdominal, which is at the top left in that figure, and this is um, where the caudal aspect of the testicle begins to descend through the abdomen. Um, and then in terms of the inguinal scrotal, this is thought to be more androgen dependent. Um, and this is where the gubernaculum swells and allows the testicle to descend through the abdominal wall into the scrotum. And there are a variety of genes that I will not go over in this particular talk uh, that have been implicated in why a testicle may not descend. Um, however, there is not one or two uh, that are uh, usually um, noticed. It's more of a multifactorial approach. And then with that comes a testicular development. Um, one of the theories that I'll go over talks about aberrant transformation of neonatal germ cells and this testicle that is cryptorchid. And there may be heat stress, which could cause increased rates of cancer and infertility. So when we think about spontaneous descent, there are a significant proportion of testicles that will descend postnatally in the first few months of infancy. And up to two thirds, depending on the group that you look at, may reach the scrotum. Um, however, after about six months of corrected gestational age, there is going to be limited further descent um, and unlikely for a physical examination of an infant to change much further. When we think about risk factors for cryptorchidism, there are some maternal factors, uh, such as smoking. Um, there are some uh, airborne uh, substances that are in our environment uh, known to uh, have an impact. In this Danish study, they were looking at uh, biphenyls, um, lower chlorinated ones, uh, and just airborne exposure. Um, and then there are some viral infections, such as uh, Zika from a few years ago, and even influenza that have been known to affect uh, the descent of the testicle. Um, and this is uh, noted in uh, larger studies of maternal health. Um, we know in terms of patient-specific factors, um, a low birth weight uh, or prematurity can lead to a higher incidence of undescended testicles. Um, and babies that are small for gestational age also have um, a higher rate of uh, undescended testicles. So when we think about the bilateral undescended testicle, I wanted to highlight that this is a specific entity um, that our guidelines as um, a, um, a small portion uh, on the right there uh, mention. Uh, this is a particular entity that all practitioners who are taking care of pedi pediatric patients need to be aware of. Um, even in a baby that appears to be male with an undescended testicle on both sides and a fully formed phallus, this may represent a, a virilized uh, infant that could actually be 46XX with congenital, um, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Uh, so this is something, a special category uh, that anyone taking care of infants in the first few days of life should be aware of. Um, and this should prompt uh, investigation and work up to appropriate specialists. Um, in cases such as this, we have found that perhaps uh, the testicles were just a little tricky to feel, um, and with, uh, with someone who's uh, well-versed in examining testicles, sometimes it does not require that workup. However, um, it's a special category that should not be overlooked based on the um, severe consequences of missing this in the neonatal period. 
So when we think about acquired undescended testicles, um, this is something that is now recognized as a true entity. Uh, in the past, there was concern that perhaps this was a misdiagnosis um, and did not actually occur. Uh, however, there are many series in the last 10 years or so uh, that document this, this to be a true entity. Um, and the idea is that the testicle previously was documented within an intrascrotal location and now will ascend over time into the groin or abdomen. Um, and the clinical point here is that this may be very difficult to determine from retractile testicles. Retractile testicles are testicles with a strong cremasteric uh, muscle. Uh, they are able to be brought to the dependent scrotum where they mean, uh, remain after fatigue of the cremasteric muscle. Um, and depending on the series and definitions of retractile uh, versus ascended testicle, up to a third of these may ascend over time. Um, and I bring this up because this is one of our most difficult uh, things that we run into in clinic. Um, some of our residents joke that the testicles are hiding, and then when we come and examine them with some maneuvers, uh, there is a, a way to kind of more reliably distinguish whether or not a testicle can be brought down off tension um, and could be safely observed versus one that may require intervention for true ascent. And this was a study out of Germany that looked at um, the uh, distribution of undescended testicles over age ranges. And I like this figure because I think it highlights the need for continued surveillance of all testicles. Um, so in the first few months uh, of life, in uh, the first two columns on the left, you can see that the vast majority of testicles that are um, noted to be undescended are a congenital undescended testicle. Um, certainly in blue, there is an iatrogenic undescended testicle, which I won't talk about too much today. However, this is one where there may have been previous groin surgery. Uh, the testicle may be trapped and thought to be rising up in the groin due to that previous scar tissue. Um, of course, there is the orange category, which is unclear uh, based on uh, examination and records. Sometimes it can be hard to know if this was primary versus an ascended testicle. But I think what's important to mention is the green bars. As you move towards the right in older childhood years, the larger percentage of children who have undescended testicles have an acquired undescended testicle. And I bring this up because it's not infrequent that we may run into a patient in our clinic um, who has a uh, difficult testicular exam um, and cannot recall the last time they were examined. Um, and so I think it's very important to um, get into the habit of making sure that the testicles are examined at each well child visit, uh, which I will go over, um, because testicle exams may change over time. And then uh, it is important to also mention to the families uh, that these are things that we're going to be monitoring. So future implications of an undescended testicle. Um, a question I'll get in clinic sometimes is, does the testicle need to be in the scrotum? Why is it important? And I like to go over function um, and uh, all of the, the reasons we consider uh, intervening in an undescended testicle. Um, an intrascrotal location is preferred. Uh, it can optimize future function uh, and help reduce malignancy risk, which we'll go over. Uh, but I thought this table here from Braga, which is from the Canadian guideline on undescended testicles, uh, went over multiple of the things that we try to optimize while we're treating and managing undescended testicles. So we want to um, treat associated conditions such as a hernia. We want to avoid missing any viable gonadal tissue in an abnormal location. Um, and we want to allow testicles to have self-exams um, and also consider uh, future uh, fertility and uh, balance that with uh, potential surgical morbidity if we're considering an intervention. 
So when we think about future function, um, some of the, the things that I go over with families are future fertility um, and hormonal function, as well as uh, risk of uh, malignancy. So to start with fertility, um, spermatogenesis is a very complex uh, process. And um, some of the key parts that I'll uh, discuss today talks about um, gonocyte transformation from a primordial germ cell to a spermatogonal stem cell. Um, this is thought to occur at about three to six months of age and to be complete at about one year, at which point there's not much further development uh, in terms of sperm until uh, closer to puberty. Um, and there is thought that uh, this process could be the, the marker and why some of the cryptorchid testicles may have um, histologic changes that lead to some of the clinical concerns, um, such as malignancy risk and decreased fertility. It's thought that perhaps inappropriate germ cell apoptosis may lead to progenitor cells that um, have uh, continued uh, persistence outside of the period that they should, which could confer an elevated malignancy risk. And then when we think about deficient transformation, um, cells that have not progressed into the next stage um, and started on the pathway to spermatogenesis, this could increase the risk of infertility. So this is a figure that I think um, illustrates um, many of the different cell types that will be um, experienced during uh, spermatogenesis. Um, and I think the most important thing to notice is up here on uh, the left, uh, that there will be this uh, dark spermatogonia, the AD type. Um, these are one of the uh, markers that is noticed on uh, biopsies of testicles in cryptorchidism uh, that can be a marker for future fertility. And from the AD, they then turn into B, R, and progress all the way around um, to uh, um, from spermatocytes uh, to spermatotids, and then uh, ultimately um, are, uh, are further matured in the epididymis at puberty. So again, um, another figure that just talks about the complexity of spermatogenesis. Uh, if you look at the bottom of the figure, this is where uh, the basal uh, lamina propria is, um, and this is where the immature cells, the um, spermatogonial uh, cells, those AD ones that I just spoke about, this is where these would begin. And then as they mature, they will move up towards the lumen of the seminiferous tubule and ultimately uh, turn into spermatids uh, and then undergo uh, spermiogenesis um, for uh, further remodeling in the epididymis. And so this is a very complex process. Um, and uh, the one thing that we know is that if this transformation into the first step of the process is uh, impaired, um, there can be uh, implications for future fertility. Um, and the question uh, that our current researchers are trying to figure out is, where is that step gone awry and how um, may we either restore it um, or help better counsel patients and families uh, for, uh, for the future. So one of the questions that comes up is what is the role of mini puberty? As many of you may know, uh, there is a mini pubertal surge that occurs about 30 to 90 days of life. Um, there is a transient increase in gonadotropins, and with this occurs the gonocyte transformation and methylation of male-specific genes. Pathways uh, are activated um, transiently. So it is thought that this is going to coincide with the transformation from the gonocytes or those primordial germ cells to that AD spermatogonia or more of a spermatogonial stem cell. Uh, which could then uh, be the, the pool for future um, sperm uh, development. 
So some of the histologic changes, um, there are several studies uh, across our literature that look at uh, biopsy at the time of uh, orchiopexy. Um, and uh, in certain institutions, this was standard. Um, so there is a large amount of data um, that uh, academically is useful. Clinically, I don't think uh, it's routine care, um, but there are plenty of uh, studies to go over. Um, one of the markers that uh, is used in some of these studies is the germ cell to tubule ratio. And this is the number of germ cells per 50 transverse tubular sections. Um, and what's interesting is this is an older study, but it has been recently replicated. Um, within the first 12 months of life, uh, these things, uh, these ratios are unchanged in cryptorchid testicles compared to controls. However, by about 12 to 18 months of life and into the second and third years of life, um, they are reduced. So we see a reduction in the number of germ cells. Um, and some of the other changes that were noticed on the histology of these various biopsies, which were completed at uh, different ages, is that the tubular structure of the seminiferous tubule is disturbed. Um, and with that, we see an increase in interstitial tissue, a decreased number of germ cells, and that we see that the Leydig cells, which produce testosterone, are slightly atrophic. Um, and all of these things um, speaks to uh, disruption of the architecture of where the sperm might be made. Um, and this is seen at an early age uh, in the first two years of life. So when we think about orchiopexy, um, as I'll go over, surgical intervention for uh, the undescended testicle um, is uh, standard of care. Um, and we think about delayed versus early orchidopexy. Um, and in this particular study uh, and uh, analysis, it was looking at before uh, versus after 12 months of age. Um, and so in the early orchiopexies, biopsies demonstrate increased spermatogonia per tubule. Um, and compared with the later uh, orchidopexy group, uh, there was similar rates of atrophy, complication rate, and um, recovery. So this would, um, again, seems to confirm some of that uh, older data that, again, an early orchidopexy may actually help improve those histologic changes noticed uh, in the cryptorchid testicle. So another thing that um, has been uh, posited to be potentially uh, problematic is the temperature. As um, all urologists know, the interscrotal temperature is decreased compared with the body. Um, and this is noticed in multiple conditions, such as uh, varicocele and undescended testicle. Um, and the thought is that that interscrotal temperature um, was uh, designed in, in the development of the body to be at an optimal temperature for the testicle, um, for sperm, for hormone production. Um, and we know that it may affect the normal contralateral testicle by signaling a heat stress. And we can see this in studies of young men with varicoceles and infertility, uh, that there may only be a left-sided varicocele. Uh, however, the heat stress and the heat transfer that occurs from that uh, varicose vein can actually impact the right testicle as well, even if there is no anatomic finding. So again, when we think about temperature, the interscrotal temperature is um, cooler than the rest of the body. And there is a thought that uh, prenatally, obviously the infant uh, is uh, at 37 degrees uh, with the mother. Um, and it's thought that this transition to postnatal life, uh, along with the first few uh, weeks at some point may help uh, signal a change in differentiation. And this may be where those AD dark spermatogonia um, differentiate from the gonocytes. Um, and and uh, the thought is that this, along with mini puberty, may be the perfect uh, you know, confirmation of uh, changes to help things move along uh, in the right direction for future fertility. 
Um, we know that the heat is cleared via the testicular artery, spermatic veins, and pimpiniform plexus. Um, and the thought is that uh, this may not be as efficient um, when it's higher up in the groin or inside the abdomen uh, due to um, the, the specific needs of the testicle in temperature uh, control. So I thought this was an interesting study, uh, a little bit more recent, um, and it actually was looking into this exact question. So uh, presumably one of the uh, concerns would be that if we are doing an orchiopexy uh, to help improve testicular parameters, um, does this procedure by externalizing the testicle and putting it into the scrotum, um, does it actually reduce temperature as we expect? Um, and this was a group, uh, Shirashi and colleagues, uh, that looked at intratesticular temperature this was a, a measurement uh, device that they used uh, in their study. Um, and they did confirm that, um, especially in intra-abdominal testicles that were then externalized and brought to the scrotum, uh, that there was a decrease in temperature as uh, per their measurements um, that was significant and more consistent with controls. Um, and along the time where they measured these testicles from pre to post-operatively over the course of about a year, um, they did monitor and notice growth of the newly uh, descended testicles volume. Um, and uh, this has thought to be a surrogate uh, for the health of the testicle. Um, so I thought this was an interesting uh, real life um, confirmation of some of the things that we uh, presume may be occurring. <clears throat> So when we think about predicting the future fertility, uh, there are a few things that we can look at um, in the clinic. Um, in terms of testicle volume, this is the most reliable marker of potential fertility in boys um, because the seminiferous tubules comprise most of the volume. Um, so if we are able to see that a testicle is growing over time, uh, that is a, um, uh, a reassuring predictor um, that uh, the testicle is um, having uh, increased growth in the seminiferous tubules and presumably in um, ability to make sperm and future fertility. Um, testicle biopsy, while um, informative, is not a common thing that we do uh, on most patients coming to the office uh, as it is invasive and potentially could injure the tissue that you are attempting to preserve. Um, and so in the boys that have had a biopsy, uh, they have been correlated to um, future uh, um, issues with spermatogenesis and um, needing further advanced reproductive techniques. Um, the largest thing that seems to be consistent across this data, which as you can imagine is from infancy through to adulthood and has um, many potential sources of bias, um, are that the AD uh, dark spermatogonia, um, if those are lacking at biopsy, that may uh, really impair the fertility. Um, there's thought in some studies that perhaps boys lacking this may not have a mini puberty surge that is um, within the normal range. Um, a study that came out in the last uh, few months actually confirmed the opposite uh, and uh, noticed that mini puberty in cryptorchid boys um, was actually normal despite some of them lacking this. So I think this is um, a place where the biopsy results in infancy and what happens at puberty in adulthood um, has a long lead time and potentially there may be many more factors going on than we're aware of, but um, this is something that if you had a biopsy and it did show those things, and that would be informative and helpful. And then, of course, a semen analysis looking at the direct semen parameters in a postpubertal patient um, who is 
desiring fertility uh, can uh, be can be helpful. Um, and in limited studies looking at early orchidopexy under a year, um, we can see that there are improved parameters associated with those who underwent later orchidopexy. Um, again, some of this data is uh, a little bit uh, mixed and prone to some bias, but uh, it is where we are. So the next thing um, we'll often discuss in um, uh, clinic is talking about malignancy risk. Uh, so age and location will help determine the risk. Um, and uh, I'll go over some of the landmark studies that help us determine um, risk and, uh, and counsel families. Um, but uh, age 13 is thought to be a cutoff, and I'll go over that study as well from a previous study out of Sweden. And this was a study out of Boston Children's recently looking at um, their pathology series, finding that only two out of 71 patients who had an archaeotomy for an undescended testicle um, had malignancy, uh, and they recommend that routine biopsy of an inguinal or scrotal testicle is unlikely, uh, but could be considered in an intra-abdominal testicle. In terms of guidelines, um, after puberty, there is an option to remove the testicle, uh, especially if it had been intra-abdominal and you think the malignancy risk would be unnecessarily high, um, and uh, I'll go over the studies that help us decide that. So this was one of the only Landmark studies uh, from Sweden and um, Peterson and all looked at almost 17,000 um, men who were treated for cryptorchidism in Sweden. And what they did was they followed them forward. Um, and it was, again, a heterogeneous uh, cohort uh, with different time frames, uh, anywhere from 1965 to uh, close to the 90s, and then followed forward. And what you can see is that on the chart on the right, uh, there is an increased risk of testicle cancer. Um, at all ages, but most markedly uh, in the last two column, last two rows of that chart, um, they divided it into a subgroup of under 13 years and over 13 years, um, quoting a relative risk um, of about 5.4 compared with 2.3. And so this um, was very interesting, highlighting the um, increase in incidence of testicle cancer in a presumably pubertal patient compared with a prepubertal patient. And then um, Dr. Saltzman uh, and her colleagues uh, recently took uh, analysis of the Peterson data and tried to further extrapolate the information uh, within that cohort of information. Um, and given that testicle cancer is a highly treatable disease, and as urologists, we can treat both undescended testicles and testicle cancer, um, her team wanted to know what would be the number needed to treat in a more contemporary uh, cohort of children undergoing orchiopexy at a younger age um, that would then again, prevent one case of testis cancer, but also prevent one case of testis cancer requiring therapy beyond a radical orchiectomy, which is curative in many instances, and one case of testicular cancer death. And so if you look at the chart, um, I have highlighted both the under six and over 15 years. And you can see that those number needed to treat uh, to prevent one case of testicle cancer in a um, subject in a younger cohort um, approaches 372. Um, and the numbers increased to almost 5,000 to prevent one uh, testicle cancer death. Um, I think that these uh, would not say that it's not important to do an orchidopexy, but I do think it offers some um, uh, real numbers for families to understand when we're thinking about some of the data, um, knowing that uh, that there can be a lot of anxiety and concern about uh, this. It's a common thing that uh, patients will come to us uh, having read on Dr. Google uh, prior to their orchidopexy appointment uh, or even their undescended or retractile appointment 
um, and uh, be very concerned about the testicle cancer risk. So I think it's uh, important for us to be able to discuss these um, in both relative and real risks as well, which we'll continue to try to help uh, quantify. So when we think about some of the malignancy subtypes, um, seminoma is much more common um, in testicles that are slightly distant from where they're supposed to be. So for example, in an intra-abdominal testicle, um, this would be much more likely to be a seminoma when compared with, a, say, distal inguinal or even high scrotal testicle. Um, and the data would suggest that orchidopexy decreases the risk of seminoma. So when you look at untreated individuals who have undergone um, removal of the testicle or treatment for testicle cancer without orchidopexy, there is a higher um, subset of those who have seminoma, especially in the undescended uh, intra-abdominal category, um, compared with those who have undergored orchidopexy have an increased rate of the mixed or non-seminomatous germ cell tumors. Um, and I think it's important to mention that seminoma likely is reduced by orchidopexy, not that um, orchidopexy increases the amount of uh, mixed germ cell tumor. Um, and uh, the data on this uh, continue to evolve. Um, however, uh, I think that's uh, one thing that we've noticed consistently. So when we think about evaluation, I think the most important thing is really the testicle examination. Um, and this is uh, a guideline statement too from um, Dr. Cologne and colleagues at the AUA guidelines for cryptorchidism. Um, and they mentioned that uh, primary care providers should palpate the testicles for quality and position at each well child visit. Um, and I think that this is critical uh, because um, this is how we would detect that ascended testicle. This is how we detect uh, if there is any atrophy uh, or if there is any uh, concern with a missed earlier undescended congenital uh, cryptorchid testis. I find that uh, the most simple way to do this is to uh, have them supine in sort of a frog-like position. Um, certainly a warm room is helpful. I can't say as routinely we have the warmest of rooms, <laughs> but I try to at least warm my hands. Um, and uh, sometimes it can be tricky. Sometimes children do not want to be examined. Um, and I think this is where, especially when they're coming to the urologist, we have to have a frank discussion about why it's important for their health um, and really try to partner with the child um, and the family to really um, discuss uh, why it is that we're here and, and what our goals are at the visit. So for difficult exams, which can be many, um, I find that uh, a variety of approaches can be helpful, um, especially in an infant, a toddler, one that's particularly chubby, uh, that has um, an undescended testicle. To me, um, as the person who may be considering orchidopexy versus continued observation, what I wanna do is I wanna see if I can palpate that testicle. And so I like to start with um, uh, at the ASIS and kind of go towards the pubic bone. Um, I'll sometimes put some hand or uh, soap uh, on my fingers to let it slip and you can feel that testicle kind of bounce back within the groin and sometimes I'll put a finger underneath the scrotum to see if I can really um, get it between my fingers. Sometimes you do need to push a little bit <laughs> so patients may not love this um, so I think kind of talking families through this uh, and really kind of uh, talking about the importance of it can be really helpful. In an older child um, you have to partner with them so the, the, the teenage tween group <laughs> tends to be the most tricky um, and they may have very strong chromostatic fibers that can make it very difficult to visualize the testicle. Um, in difficult times, I may have them put on a gown, sit cross-legged, try to relax and see, you know, is there a way that we could talk about school or something else um, and really see if those testicles can descend. Um, if you see them descend, usually you can then uh, examine them and uh, hold them in place to fatigue that cremasteric muscle to determine is this really a retractile testicle and could we safely observe this as those will typically resolve by puberty or is this one that we just can't get into the scrotum and really maybe 
benefit from intervention. And in cases where it's unclear or there's a slight amount of tension, I will have the family come back um, and uh, follow this closely or offer you know, examination under anesthesia, depending on my level of concern. So a question we'll often get is, isn't there a test we can do to see if that testicle is there? And my answer is not really. Um, and I think this is a point where I wanted to really uh, go over some of the information and um, the guidelines. So um, Dr. Tazian and Dr. Kopp out of UCSF did a um, systemic, uh, systematic review and meta-analysis looking at um, ultrasound in non-palpable testicles. And what they found is the sensitivity is not great. It's only about 45%, um, and specificity is about 78%. And so they found basically a positive ultrasound result changes that probability from about 55% that it is there to about 64%. Um, and a negative one decreases it from about 55% to about 49%. So not particularly helpful. Um, multiple guidelines recommend against ultrasound. So I would say in general, um, at the top we have the American Urologic Association, but the European guidelines, British guidelines, and Canadian guidelines all recommend against ultrasound. Um, and I'll go over the reasons for this. So when you think about choosing wisely, this is a campaign through the American Board of Internal Medicine. And the aim is to um, help clinicians and patients avoid overuse of low value care. And they partnered with the American Urologic Association, and I'll highlight it here, but on number five, um, their number five uh, point is do not routinely perform ultrasound in boys with cryptorchidism. Um, and so we find that it is a uh, low value test uh, with poor diagnostic performance. Um, and uh, I'll go over what the harm is. So when we think about um, the harm, oftentimes families will say, well, it's, it's not invasive. What, what would be the harm? Um, and it's true that for perhaps that one individual patient, there may not be much harm. Um, we do worry about the cost of ultrasound uh, in this particular healthcare climate with uh, various plans. It is not insignificant for some families. Um, and incidental findings such as microlithiasis, epididymal head cysts, other things can uh, then prompt continued following um, and increase care. Care, uh, costs. Um, the biggest thing I'll mention is that it is a difficult discussion with the family, um, and it may complicate the surgical approach depending on what you find. Um, trying to convince a family that uh, their baby needs surgery because the ultrasound showed no testicle um, is, a, um, is a, a conversation we've had many times. Uh, but I think uh, when you order a test, if it's not going to change your management, um, the, the question is what would be the utility of that particular study. And then when we think about healthcare expenditures, talk about high deductible plans combined with facility fees. Um, I've had several patients getting testicle ultrasounds for other reasons that um, have a patient portion of upwards of $2,000. And if you look at this particular map from a recent uh, article looking at medical debt um, in our uh, country, that would put them squarely into the red category, which is the highest one. Um, so I think it's, it's important to be mindful of these things and really try to optimize the care that we're delivering and ensuring that it's going to benefit the patient. Um, and then just observation based on ultrasound results. So if no testicle is seen, why does he still need an operation? Um, so there's about a third of a chance uh, that the testicle is located within the abdomen. And anecdotally, in the last few testicles I've done that are non-palpable, um, two of them had ultrasounds. One said there was no testicle there, it was not. One said there was a testicle there, it was a nubbin, there was no testicle there. Um, so I think that um, we've all seen that it, it can be misleading um, and uh, can, can challenge uh, some of the clinical exam, which has uh, been proven to be the most reliable. 
Um, this was just from pediatric radiology perspective, um, and I highlighted um, the last paragraph where uh, this author, uh, in a letter to the editor, talked with mixed with the reasoning of false positives, false negatives, parental anxiety, anesthetics, waste harm, the only conclusive investigation being a diagnostic laparoscopy. This is a plea to refuse a request for ultrasound. And uh, this was a study, uh, Milford et al., looking at uh, current status uh, out of Toronto, looking at ultrasounds. And they found that uh, basically uh, in a representative sample of the children uh, referred for undescended testicles, um, about 75% were palpable. Um, however, almost 50 to 62% of children did have an ultrasound um, that was uh, not indicated. They looked at the release of guidelines of various different specialties and tried to um, track the use of ultrasound over time and um, found that there was no impact of the guidelines. Um, so they highlighted um, that potentially we could improve uh, dissemination of this information to really make sure that um, patients and families are having guideline adherent care. And then this was just looking at pre-referral ultrasound um, and found that uh, children who had an ultrasound had um, a three-month delay in definitive surgical management. Um, there are a variety of studies that look at the number of months of delay for a congenital undescended testicle, um, saying that there is a quantifiable amount of patients that will then require future intervention from advanced reproductive and have um, an increased risk of malignancy. It's not strong data. However, I think the point is that if you know that the child needs intervention, um, um, ordering an ultrasound may, especially in this cohort, um, really delay their care that could be definitive. And then the etiology of continued overuse. So certainly I think we've all been pressured to um, malpractice concerns, time and economical constraints and easy access to technology. Um, and then desire to meet patient expectations. Patients come in um, asking you know, for a test um, and I think it's important for us to educate and try to optimize um, their expectations, though it is challenging. And most physicians do acknowledge that overuse is a problem. Um, when we think about active interventions, you can do tutorials, um, web-based things. I think we can all uh, appreciate that perhaps another module is not on anyone's uh, hit list of things to do. Um, and in-person teaching uh, has thought to be effective. Um, and then in various places, they've had more of a forced function. Uh, so in Manitoba, they trialed uh, an approach where ultrasound requests were denied with an explanatory letter. Um, where I trained at Vanderbilt, the surgeon in chief was a pediatric urologist, and he must he had to approve all ultrasound requests with a diagnosis of undescended testicle, which led to some interesting discussions. Um, uh, but the point was well taken that uh, he felt that this was important, uh, and uh, if the patient requesting an ultrasound, I wanted to speak with him uh, and quantify their reasoning. Um, that that was how he he approached it. Um, so in specific circumstances, I think as a urologist um, who's considering potential surgical intervention, every once in a while it can be helpful. Um, this was a study looking at could we quantify a nubbin to potentially go inguinally or scrotally to avoid a laparoscopy. Um, and we know that in um, monoarchidism, uh, the contralateral testicle hypertrophy uh, length of over about 1.8 or 2 centimeters can indicate perhaps there's no testicle in the abdomen. Um, but again, none of these are, are definitive enough to um, avoid any intervention and to definitively say that this child does not need a laparoscopic uh, exploration. 
So when we talk about referral delay, I thought this was an interesting study looking at the knowledge base for referral. Um, and again, they looked at the midpoint of the AUA guideline in 2014. So they examined referral trends from 2010 to 17, and they did not find any change after the guideline. Um, but what was interesting on table four right below is that um, when you think about residency was noticed uh, as the main source of knowledge for undescended testicle referrals. Um, and there is a wide range of uh, practitioners uh, from residency less than five years to over 15 years. So I think that this highlights a potential place where continued education could be helpful um, to ensure that uh, most up-to-date guidelines are being um, disseminated and adhered to in, um, in practice. And again, talking about referral optimization, um, three predictors that have been confirmed in a few studies would be a history of prematurity. Um, if an undescended testicle is mentioned to families at birth, or if there was scrotal asymmetry on examination, this would indicate that a referral for undescended testicle might more truly require an orchidopexy rather than be retractile in nature. When we think about the role of surgical intervention, we think about orchidopexy and divide this by palpable versus non-palpable. This is the AUA guidelines um, algorithm. I apologize, it did not transfer very well there. But basically, what we'll go over is if the testicle is palpable, you can approach it via an inguinal orchidopexy or a scrotal orchidopexy. Um, one of my mentors in residency uh, would always uh, manipulate the scrotum up to the testicle. And if in carefully selected patients, this could save them an inguinal incision. Um, and it may even be utilized for reoperative cases as well. And then um, definitive uh, uh, determination of where that testicle is, um, is often, if non-palpable, with diagnostic laparoscopy. So if you find a blind ending of vessels and vas going together, it's thought that there was an intra-abdominal event, testicle did not develop, um, and you're done. However, if you find testicle vessels and vas entering the ring, uh, an inguinal exploration is required, um, or an intra-abdominal testis could then be brought down laparoscopically. Um, and there are two approaches for this, for a very high testicle that's up near the renal vessels, those testicle vessels may not stretch all the way down to the scrotum and may need um, to be divided in a Fowler-Stevens two-stage or the deferential artery um, then becomes the main blood supply. Um, however, depending on the series, there can be atrophy. So this approach uh, is used for the highest of testicles. And then some anatomical findings you may see include a patent processus or hernia. There is uh, fusion abnormalities where the epididymis and the testicle are not fused as you'd expect, or the vas is inserting in an aberrant fashion. Um, uh, outside of the vas insertion, the fusion abnormalities are more limited in clinical significance. But I do mention it to the families, uh, especially in this era of CARES, where they can read your operative notes um, to make sure that I go over all of the things I noticed at exploration. And then abnormal insertion of the gubernaculum is common in an acquired undescended testicle. I find these are largely inserted right next to the pubic bone. Um, when you pull on the gubernaculum, instead of being at the dependent scrotum, it's kind of lateral to the pubis. And then talking about long-term outcomes, um, early orchidopexy may allow catch-up growth with improved volumes, and counseling for future malignancy risks is important. Um, this was from um, the AUA core curriculum that we wrote, uh, just talking about um, putting things in relative uh, um, uh, context. So a patient with undescended testicle may have an increased risk of testis cancer, but compared to control, all the numbers are quite low. Um, and paternity rates, while slightly decreased compared with control, um, are not significantly different. Um, so these, uh, I think, are important when we're counseling. And then current areas of research, trying to better quantify the acquired uh, and ascended testicle, uh, malignancy risk and future implications, and then quantifying the malignancy risk in an earlier uh, orchidopexy group uh, would be important.
So in summary, undescended testicles are common, uh, regular examination is key, um, and routine ultrasound is not recommended in the workup of cryptorchidocins. And uh, I, Dr. Fink and I had the same photo. Um, this is my uh, daughter uh, holding uh, the, the folder of, with her as a uh, baby. Um, and if any questions are there, I'd be happy to answer them. Thank you, uh, Dr. Dudley. That was a uh, great grand rounds. Uh, I, I always uh, like to review and learn new things uh, about uh, urologic disorders, which I think are very well described and, and with clear messages. I really appreciate it. But I know it's hard in practice. Uh, so we have over 100 people that have logged in to our grand rounds today, and we're open for questions from, from all of you. Uh, while we're waiting for that, I guess a, a question for you would be, when is it too late to, to do an orchidopexy if, if you yeah. missed it? That's a wonderful question, um, and I didn't get into it too much because I didn't want to transfer into the adult realm. Um, but it's not uncommon that uh, you know at laparoscopy for something in the adult world uh, that a testicle might be be noticed. Um, and uh, there is some evidence that if um, the patient is under say 50 years of age, uh, that they would benefit from an orchiectomy at that point. Um, and um, there's actually. Um, the guideline would suggest that after 50, you could just watch it because the risk of uh, testicle cancer um, is a younger man's uh, uh, disease. Um, and so uh, typically at that point, they would switch that the morbidity of excising the testicle may um, uh, surpass the, the benefit. So, so orchidopexy versus orchiectomy, I guess, is the, the question, right? And yeah. so in, at, at and an so, older age, it would be yeah. more orchiectomy. So in than older age, um, in the past, for when I was in residency, we did a lot more orchiectomies for pubertal boys. Um, and now that's sort of um, been brought back with the newer malignancy risks, really noticing that uh, with self-examination and appropriate patient counseling, um, I do not routinely remove the testicle at puberty. However, if it is an intra-abdominal testicle or it looks abnormal, I think um, doing a biopsy to kind of ensure that there isn't uh, anything more um, concerning going on um, would be reasonable. Now, you mentioned ultrasound as something that it's not generally desirable. Uh, now, the as you know, there are plenty of local ultrasound machines. Now, ED uses a lot of ultrasound. So, any any thought on on on, a, on that kind of device to be used uh, for examination? Yeah. So, I think it depends on what your clinical question is. So, um, certainly, we know that undescended testicles may present as torsion. They may present, you know, with pain. Um, and I think if you're looking for for a reason for pain or or some other, you know, hernia, some other clinical question, I think that that would be very useful. I think just in terms of localization, I, I would probably say just send the patient to us, and we're we can palpate and, and really probably set the patient up with uh, definitive management quicker um, than having an ultrasound that then you know can add cost and, and confusion. Uh, so, a uh, question from uh, from one of our residents uh, is is the following, and again, this probably has to do with the with the board exams, right? These these questions invariably come up with the at, at the board uh, and boards they just passed, but they'll come up again next year. And, uh, it, it, how often, how often should, should a testicular exam be done every physical exam for a, for a boy through uh, what age? I think um, the ascended data from uh, Germany would indicate through puberty, I think it's very important to do a testicle exam at each um, well-child visit um, because you can see ascent um, up until the time of puberty. Um, and then I think counseling families and, and patients about, uh, you know, um, we see routine numbers of testicle cancers that, um, that have not been caught. So as a urologist, I would advocate for, for each well-child visit. Okay, great. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, do we see any other questions on... On your cues, I don't see any more on mine. 
Um, so, Dr. Dudley, thank you very much for an outstanding grand round. So we, we're truly blessed here at Connecticut Children's to have uh, someone of your caliber and our entire urology team who are not just incredibly competent, but also incredibly nice. So thank you. And, and the pictures of your children are absolutely beautiful. <laughs> uh, for, for everyone, uh, next week we, we have uh, our, our very special grand rounds, uh, which, which commemorates it, it and it, it really reminds us of of that, you know, gun violence continues to be a major problem in, in this country uh, due to the horrific events this week in Michigan. And we will have uh, a special grand rounds uh, where, you know, we have done it every year since Sandy Hook took place and it will be next Tuesday. So please join us uh, for that special grand rounds. Uh, also this Friday, it's PJ Day. Uh, PJ Day is a major fundraiser for Connecticut Children's. It's started many years ago. So please wear your PJs everywhere. Um, in legal PJs, please, you know, so I would ask, uh, and, uh, and then please, uh, you know, send us your contribution on behalf of cancer research. It's a really beautiful event. Uh, with that, we'll close grand rounds, have a, a good uh, end of the week and weekend, uh, coming up, uh, and then we'll see you again on Tuesday. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.